Hello and welcome to the Virtual Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Sunderland. This is a spot where nurses share their stories and their experiences to provide mentorship as well as help nurses and soon-to-be nurses just like yourself along the way. I hope you enjoy these episodes. Welcome to season three, episode five of the Virtual Clinical Podcast. I am joined today by Susan Richwine. Richwine, correct? That's how you pronounce correct. your last name? Yeah. Thank you so much. Because I was like, I'm going to forget how to pronounce your last name. It's been forever. <laughs> Susan is a dynamic nurse leader, clinician, and educator with diverse experiences. And I'm delighted to talk to her about these experiences. She leads with compassion and clarity. She is dedicated to developing connected and collaborative teams, utilizing healthy work environment practices, focus on care delivery through evidence-based practice, staffing strategies, and service excellence. I'm delighted to welcome Susan to the podcast. Susan, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Nicole. It's great to be here today. The first question, because I have reviewed your CV, which is which I love. I love looking at people's CVs or resumes. And I tell this to students all the time because I feel like it gives you a good perspective on where someone's been and what they've been through. And you can also kind of look at it and say, well, that looks fun. Maybe I could try that one day. But I also like learning about, you know, different, different avenues of people. And the first question I always ask people on this podcast is why did you become a nurse? What made you go into nursing? Well, funny story. Um, I was a respiratory tech. I had gone to school. Well, let me start this way. When I was in high school, my guidance counselor told me that I should marry well um, because my grades would never get me into college, right? So there I was a 17 year old uh, young girl. Um, my, my grades weren't bad. I was, a, I was a, a decent student. I was an academic, um, you know, maybe a 3.0 in high school, very active. Um, engaged, um, you know, really kind of just your ordinary girl. Um, Wasn't a standout flavor by any stretch, but I had a great group of friends and a a big variety of friends, but no one click. So I didn't really fit, you know, a true academic or a scholar. So I decided, well, you know, he knew best, right? He was my guidance counselor. So I, I liked healthcare. I liked caring for people. I always had that innate um, piece of me that always wanted to be um, a fixer, a doer, a carer. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll see what kind of trade schools are out there. And I looked at the VOTEC and I looked at some other trade schools at that time, that's what they were called. And I became a medical assistant. It was about a nine month program. Um, uh, ironically graduated, um, you know, the star of the class and landed a, a job in a hospital as a respiratory tech um, on the job training. Wow. Because way back when, 30 years ago, you could do that. You yeah, know, we, could, we could go in and we could learn on the job and I gained great experience doing that. And then um, hospitals merged at that time and I went to kind of the mothership and I was there a few months and the CNO uh, in the late 80s was rounding up um, any healthcare worker who wanted to go to nursing school because we were in crisis again. Well, I, you know, it's, it's repetitive. Yep. 
And she said, you know what, you're going to go to nursing school. And I said, well, I don't really want to go to nursing school. I, I like my job. And she said, okay, well, we're going to sign you up and we're going to pay for it. So get ready. That's nice. Here we, here we go. And so off to nursing school, I went <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and, and it was the best thing that ever happened. So clearly she saw something in me. It was a small community hospital. Everybody knew everybody. And it was, you know, truly just a gift. It was truly a gift. Yeah. And that's how my nurse nursing career started. That's awesome. And then you continue to work for that community hospital for some period of time, correct? Uh, right. So at the time I had to give two years back. Um, I did a work study program. So they paid me um, part-time wages and they paid for school and I worked like 12 hours a week or something, something crazy. Yeah. Um, it was amazing. It was honestly, truly a gift because I probably would not have been able to afford it. And I would have never had the courage to do it on my own. Right. Because yeah. I had been told you're never going to go to college. Right. You're never going to be someone. I share the same story back in high school that it was like during senior year and I had expressed my interest in becoming a doctor to someone, a teacher. And they were like, well, you're never going to make it anywhere in the medical field. And I was like, okay, watch me. Right. So I, I had a different perspective where I was like, no, I'm going to, but I was still kind of like a little bit surprised at when people just assume that you're not smart enough or you can't do something because they see limitations from themselves in you, you know? Right. Yeah. What, what is working in a community hospital? Like, is it different from working in a larger or organization? Did you feel like a family connection that I've, I've, I've heard from so many people? So I would, my preference is community. Um, I obviously am in a large academic uh, medical center currently, um, and I've been in academics before. I really do prefer the community setting, although the resources are at sometimes very um, lean. I feel like I've gained so much more um, independence and a, a, such a grand skill set because not only do you have to do it, but a lot of times you're the person leading it because by default you have the energy or you have the courage or, or there's no choice. It's uh, just in time yeah. and you, you do it. Yeah. So for me, um, community has been my pillar of strength. And I, I think there's also that family connection you're, you're independent, but interdependent and then completely dependent on each other, right? Um, because you, there's no, nothing in the community world that you can do alone. There's just not the resource there is in large academics. Yeah, I love that you just called it the pillar of strength too. I think that community hospitals ha are, are, are that for so many reasons in different communities, for so many people that rely on community hospitals as not only a, um, a, a hospital to go to, but as a safe space. You know, they know that, that their favorite person's gonna be there to, to take care of them. They right. know that there's this avenue of trust because at least from my perspective, a lot of times, you know, people don't just leave community hospitals as much as I think they leave academic medical centers. I could be wrong. But from what I've seen, I, I haven't I haven't witnessed a lot of people talk about leaving 
their hospital that's a, that's in the community setting. Um, or at least they've switched jobs within their community hospital and kind of have stayed. But all, but ultimately there's, there is a legitimate passion that lies behind serving in that community role. I think that's really true. Um, and working in an academic center, um, kind of in a, in an area where, where I am now, um, there isn't a huge community to serve quite honestly, because you're a quaternary center, right? Like mm -hmm. everything comes to you. Yeah. And so the, commun the community is all of those other hospitals filtering you, the patient. Yeah. Um, so the, the community at large is actually very small where I work. It's, yeah. a very, it, it's a very small community. What we serve is a larger um, component. Um, we serve the state, we serve an East Coast, we, you know, like, that's what we really serve. And so when you're at community, you really do know the people. I know patients by name at many of the hospitals I worked at. That's awesome. I still, you know, I still remember um, their names. In the academic world, I'm a little bit removed from that because mm -hmm. they typically don't come back, right? Right. Not, not not often because it's not a service to the community it is a service to the specialty or the emergency right. yeah yeah it's a very different feeling it is it's it's a different feeling for me in neuroscience so i typically remember certain people but i don't remember everybody and they don't come back to visit you the same way that perhaps you know somebody would come and get a chemo infusion and spend months with you Right. Um, and certainly, you know, it's, it's, it's a way different experience than just kind of welcoming back people. You kind of see people and then, and then you discharge them and you probably will never see them again in your life. Even, even as a staff nurse in my role, right. You don't really see people again, unless they are, they, they live within a certain mile radius and choose to come back to, to that place. Right. Um, in this community setting, you have been, I think, literally everything <laughs> under the sun, which is awesome. <clears throat> and I want to pick your brain about that a little bit because, because, I, because I love this, because I think that a lot of times nurses, new nurses starting out, student nurses see perhaps like two or three different roles and that's it. And I want to know your journey within this community hospital setting and what led you, what led you to these different roles and experiences. Oh, okay. So, you know, you always start as the staff nurse, right? <clears throat> that, that's the journey. That's where it begins. That's your bedrock. And so in, I spent a significant amount of time in two separate community organizations, one faith-based and one just simply nonprofit community. Um, staff nurse in both of them. Um, I honestly, I'm just a born leader. You know, that's, that's a coined phrase, right? But it's the truth. It's just how I'm wired. So clearly a charge nurse very quickly, even as a novice nurse. So I remember my first couple weeks in my uh, brand new RN role at the community hospital. Um, as soon as I had my ACLS, the next week I, I became the charge nurse on three to 11 shifts. So I might've been a nurse three, four months charge nurse. 
and then um, grew that role into preceptor. From there, there were great needs, grew that role into house supervisor. Uh, can you imagine, like, here you go, here's the whole hospital, you're a nurse for two years, right. take it. From, from take preceptor it to house manager, yeah. Right, and then um, a nurse manager, um, you know, just the normal succession of it. Um, but for me, I really like to think of the career as a jungle gym as um, rather than that linear ladder. And I think it's okay to do all of those roles in any order you want, mm. as long as your skill is what the organization needs. So I'm okay to go back and be a staff nurse. In fact, I find the most joy in my job as a nurse caring for people mm -hmm. at the bedside. It's my greatest joy. Um, at another community setting there several years, I went in as an agency nurse. I was a contract traveler. They needed, um, I was at a point in my life raising kids, needed some flexibility. Um, partner at that time carried benefits, didn't need to worry about that. So I was doing local contract traveling, very lucrative at the time, Yeah, back in the early 2000s. And I went into this second place where I've stayed um, quite a bit of time as a staff nurse in an ICU and a primary preceptor. So I was contracted as an ICU primary preceptor wow. because they had lost almost their entire staff wow. through attrition, internal transition, all kinds of things. Yeah. That's something that you never I, hear, by the way, is a contractor for precepting. Right. That, I mean, that is how shallow their, their depth was. Yeah. And, and I don't mean that unkindly. It, that was just the it's truth just, of it. It's just what it was. It just was, it, and it totally, that's what it was. I took on a GN and um, she is now a nurse practitioner, by the way. And we have remained very good friends through the years um, from that role. I was asked to stay on in that facility as um, permanent staff. I did do that again through just the natural transition and succession, supervisor, nurse manager. And at that time we had a hospital within an ho a hospital, uh -huh. like an LTAC center. Okay. And I then transitioned into a CNO role from being a, a manager. Wow. to that hospital within a hospital. Yeah. So, you know, I've always had kind of that natural succession and progression. But again, I really want to emphasize that it is okay that you jungle gym. Yeah. That it doesn't have to be that linear ladder. For me, it, it, it's been very linear with breaks in between. Yeah. But I've also seen that you had a gig as a clinical wound care specialist and taking, care, and taking care of people at, at the bedside, I'm sure, you know, and I that did. was uh, after you had done all these things as director of nursing and house supervisor, you know, you, you kind of like literally as reading your resume, it's just kind of jungle gymish, you know, in, in, in a good way, you know, you kind of have a very comprehensive career of kind of choosing, you know, okay, well, I'm going to take a break here as a clinical wound specialist, and I'm going to do something else. I think that's the beauty of nursing. Um, if you really want to be a, a well-rounded nurse, you cannot stay in one area. And it's okay if you do stay in one area, that's not bad either. 
but if you want to be able to have the um the flexibility and the the ebb and the flow to go in and out of staff to leader to staff um grow grow your experience and don't be afraid of it yeah try things that are uncomfortable oh yeah for sure and learn from that and grow and be vulnerable and that's a huge 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 life lesson of mine as well is to not be afraid of just doing something and you might fail at it it's fine but you've learned something and you allowed yourself to be vulnerable to, to grow what is a main difference between a house manager and a unit manager? Hmm. Or at least in so, the role that, that you had, because it's probably different between a community hospital and then a large academic medical center, I'm sure. I mean, I think there's some very similar features in, in either place, but as a house manager, you have this global perspective of um, for the good of all, right? We want to ensure that um, not only do we have throughput, we have staffing, we are dealing with the one-offs, we're dealing with patient experience. And then on the unit level, you have this full ownership, what I, what I would consider full ownership um, of your, not just your clinical unit, but your financial unit, your learning unit, and most importantly, your people. Mm. And I think people are the most important asset in any organization. And when we take real good care of our people, I can assure you we take real good care of our patients. But I believe people must be first. Yes. I'm writing that down because I, I'm, I'm writing tips and tricks for <laughs> the self, for students, um, because there's two gems so, so far and we're only like 20 minutes into this of don't be afraid of trying new things and taking good care of people. Such, such a good nugget. That's really interesting though, to hear a difference for students uh, between a global perspective and then the unit perspective as well. I've had students that have shadowed house managers and like, that's what, and that's what they wanna do. They're like, I wanna be a house manager. And I'm like, really? Like you want to be a house manager of everything that you could be in life, house manager, which I don't deny them. Right. But it's just very surprising to hear that they have, like, they see this role and it's kind of like, this is the coolest thing because of the global perspective. And also because all the things that they see, I'm sure within that role as well. That's, that's really something. Well, yeah, I think it's lofty, right? Um, When you think about being the maybe one and only true administrator within the building and if you're in an academic center you're talking anywhere from 300 to a thousand beds if you're in community you can have a large amount of beds and still be community I've worked in community where there's 500 beds yeah but you know giving having that um responsibility and that accountability of being handed over a building with uh patients people and finance is pretty daunting. Yeah. So for a student to say, you know, that's really what I aspire to do. I say, ground yourself a little bit and get some of that great clinical skill because without that, you won't be able to make those high level decisions. Yes. You won't have the, the bandwidth to, to know, is this right or wrong? Yeah, that's such a good point too that I try to make to my students is 
you know, spend at least five years at the bedside, learning how bedside works, learning how patients work, learning how family patient and nurse dynamics work, learning how nurse manager relationships work, learn things at the bedside because you're going to see them there more often than you're going to see them by achieving a master's right out of the gate or achieving a leadership position right out of the gate. You know, I, I think you said something really important there and that was relationship. Mm. I think nursing is all about the relationship. Leadership is all about the relationship. You can be the best clinician and have the best clinical skills, but if you can't build a relationship, you don't have the package it takes to be a good nurse. That's so true. Because how are you going to, you know, politely talk to your patient about some horrible things? Some horrible things. Horrible things. Yep. Like I like, and not just like diagnoses, horrible things, but let's say, you know, you have to do all of these different procedures for them right? You're putting in multiple IVs at once. You're putting in a Foley catheter. You're putting in a rectal tube, things that are very uncomfortable for people like who, who are patients to kind of grasp and deal with, but you have to build a, a, a relationship that's so crafted to be able to say, this is what we need to do because it's going to make you feel better. It's going to help you out in the long run and to have them trust you in the same breath. Yeah. I think any time that you're doing those kinds of procedures, whatever they may be, whether it's an IV or some kind of tube or a procedure at the bedside with the physician, and there isn't dialogue and narration, you've fractured trust completely. Mm. And you, you can't regain that. And so that's, that's all part of that relationship, right? Yeah, absolutely. And we really need our nurses um, to understand the value of that. We aren't just there to do the process, the, the procedure, the task at hand. Um, that relationship will buy them so much more confidence in whether they've done the skill or not, that it will buy them the confidence if they have the relationship. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's that's such a good point to 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 marry those things together, of uh, relationships and confidence. Because you're so right. If 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 somebody has confidence in you, then you've just built a relationship of not only perhaps this this patient nurse relationship, but perhaps as a mentor mentee relationship as well, in many different avenues and aspects. And seeing confidence in yourself is so important as a new nurse. You know, we there's a lot of discussions around nurse bullying. And yeah, I, I share stories all the time about what, what I've seen in the past, but it's, it has to come down to confidence of your mentor and, and putting confidence in your mentee or um, confidence in the patient to, to just allow you to do your job, you know, and build right. those skills. And, and who knows if you want to be a CCRN, that's, that's, you need the confidence enough to study and then take that test. You know, you, you can't think of it as a daunting experience, which a lot of people do. When you became a, a clinical wound care specialist, uh, what was that job like? So I've done it twice. I've done it with two different companies, actually. Um, the first time that I embarked on that journey, I did a lot of studying, uh, self-study and then wound round studying with my uh, mentor preceptor and sat for a wound care certification um, because I believe in self-validation and I also believe that those credentials uh, speak to my clients to say, 
I have taken the time I've invested in myself so that I can invest in you and give you the very best up-to-date evidence-based care possible. Um, so part of the journey as a wound specialist is not just clinical, but it was also a business practice, okay. um, a business model. I didn't sell product. I, what I did was educate and train during wound care rounds and introduced products so that we could be a Medicare B provider of product okay. to facilities. That's so not only did, not only did I know the, um, the wound, but I also needed to understand the best products and not and I'm not talking name brand, but I, I'm talking about what's the best product to use for which wound? How do we get best healing? How do we write the care plan? And then how do we deliver that education to the staff who are going to be caring for those wounds and utilizing the product appropriately and effectively? Um, so, you know, really intense. I traveled the state of Pennsylvania. I covered from Harrisburg to Philadelphia, out to State College, um, about anywhere from 17 to 20 facilities a month, wow. rounding once, yeah. I'd round once a month during their wound care rounds, making recommendations, and then helping them to write best care plans and strategies so that they were um, aligned with the Department of Health health and regulatory compliance. It sounds like much more than, than what even I thought the role was uh, when you talk about regulatory and compliance. So, so a lot of times, you know, students don't necessarily learn that in nursing school, right off the bat. They're not worried about it until, they're, until a manager mentions to them, well, we have to worry about regulatory and compliance because we're getting recertified for X, Y, and Z. And I tend to talk about it because I think it's important as a student to learn it because you're going to have to worry about it because you have to keep things up to date and make sure things are appropriate. But that's such a heavy, I think, you know, task that not a lot of people think about when perhaps they're stepping into a role like this wound care specialist in terms of this business model and how regulatory matches with the business model to help promote best practices and promote that best practice at the bedside. Because if you don't have your, your regulatory requirements met, you can't just roll out a new product. You can't roll out a care plan and you certainly can't educate the, the staff or the patients on what you're going to do. That is so true and I learned a ton in the wound care uh, world because it is um, it is Medicare based right so facilities want reimbursement mm. they you know they, they can't survive without it right and so they want to assure that they're aligned with Medicare but they also want to uh, ensure that the patients are getting or the residents are getting exactly what they need. And sometimes there's a divide, right? Medicare yeah. will only pay this much, but the product that we really want isn't a covered product. And so you have to figure out then, how do we meet this patient's need, stay fiscally responsible, stay in compliance with what's expected, write the care plan so that it demonstrates we did the best thing not because it was a financial driven issue, but because it was a patient centered driven issue. And that, those are hard balancing acts that yes. you, 
again, goes back to that relationship that you're talking with the charge nurses, you're talking with the director of nursing to say, you know, here's, here's what I can provide from a reimbursement standpoint, but I'm going to tell you this wound really is going to require X, Y, and Z, which is not aligned with the, the Medicare reimbursement. So here are some strategies you could use that will help you be fiscally responsible, will help the patient heal. First and foremost, always help the patient heal, no matter what. And here's how you can um, gel those together and get the best outcome. Yeah, and even lead the organization to perhaps being creative in terms of well, how we're going to solve this problem. This this person has brought to me what what they're seeing in terms of the Medicare reimbursement world, and this is where we exist on an economic basis in terms of what we can provide. But perhaps that leads them to going back to whatever committee or whoever approves this stuff, saying, "Okay, well, this is what we have now. How do we solve the, the problem for the patient? Because the patient is what matters, and we have to help heal this patient. Because because at the end of the day, no hospital wants stage four pressure injuries that happened at their hospital, right? That's worse than I think not getting reimbursed by any Medicare out there. You know, I think that right. drives greater loss for a hospital organization than just simply paying for the product outright." And, you know, I have to say that all of the, the time spent in wound care, I never had an organization, uh, even for the for-profits, which I spent a lot of time in, say to me, well, we're, we're not going to do that for the pay. We're not going to do that. For-profits. I've never, that. yeah, I, I've, ne I've never had anyone say to me, I'm not going to take care of the patient. Right, right. I, 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 so for me, I truly believe that, um, Patients do matter, residents do matter, and people will figure it out as long as they have some help. And I was the help to be able to do that for them. That's awesome. That sounds like such a great role though, to even just kind of get your feet wet into a business model and reimbursement perspective. Because if, I think like if, if you're a leader in healthcare, you have to be, be okay with learning the concepts of business and economics and, and things like that, because at the end of the day, it, that does matter, you know? I think it's an imperative, right? We, we don't have deep pockets. I don't care what organization you are. Your resources are finite. It, it may not appear to be that way in some organizations, but the truth is, we really have to protect our resources and do the right thing so that we can deliver the care to our patients. And so we can take care of our people, our people yeah. who work for us, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. We have, we have two customers. The patient and the people. That is correct. So important. I love that concept so much. I'm, I'm probably gonna steal that and, I'll, and I will cite you, don't, don't get, you know, <laughs> but in my, in my clinicals, you know, I, I tend to do post post clinicals by just talking about patients, but also talking about the things that they don't learn in nursing school, like right. reimbursements, like what insurance premiums mean, what this means for X, Y, and Z, what charity care means, all this important stuff, because at the end of the day, resources are finite. We have to always be be this a, a problem solver, no matter what role we're in in the organization and help lead us to better patient care because that's that's all that matters that is what matters
that is what I have questions as well because you describe yourself as a as a natural born leader and I want to know how how you figured that out like how did you figure out that you're a natural born leader did you just want to take charge all the time when you were like within some sort of setting um did someone did someone say to you you have really good really good leadership qualities um were you ever like in a specific situation where things came out that you're like this is this is for me um gosh that's a hard question you know i think it probably started at home quite okay. honestly um my 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 dad got sick at an early age. Um, he was in his 40s when he had his first MI. And I remember having to take him to the hospital, you know, and, and get him there. And what, how was I didn't drive? And how was I going to do that? And he didn't want to go in the ambulance. And, you know, just like kind of prioritizing how, how do I do this? Calling the neighbor, loading him up, getting to the hospital, explaining everything. So I think it started at a very early age, um, making sure that I could prioritize and and get the help that was needed. I remember being in um, school and always being able to figure out how to get everybody on the same page so that we could play the game at recess, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just kind of like, yeah. Um, in like influencing, I would say more yeah. influencing, you know, um, finding the highlight of it. Uh, maybe I'm a Pollyanna at times too, but you know, that, you know, we could, we could go to recess, but we all had to agree that on what game we were going to play. And, you know, being that person who could do the pro and con list and get people to realize that the, this game this was going to be the game because it would get everybody on the same page and we, and we could get recess because that was the goal. I wanted recess. Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, honestly, who doesn't want I, recess I, now? Right? Who no? doesn't want recess? Like I'd like a nap too, if they allow it. <laughs> so I think, I mean, it started at a very early age where I could, could navigate and, and negotiate, I guess, pretty early on in my life and then okay. prioritize um, I'm left-handed and somewhat, uh, right-brained, which is, and left-brained. So I do both. Um, I think that's somewhat unique. I can be analytical, but I definitely am a creative. So I feel, you know, I feel, I feel fortunate, I guess, in that manner. Um, the, the natural born leader, I guess I can be bossy too. You know, I, I'm not bossy. I have leadership skills is kind of one of those memes out there. <laughs> um, I was always the teacher when we played school. <clears throat> I always was the, <clears throat> the mom when we played house. So you kind of, of always naturally just fill these roles. Yeah, I did. And just, just did them. That's, that's right. so great. Th- thank you so much for, for sharing that, like those stories, because a lot of times, you know, students will come up to me and they want to know how to get into leadership at, at some point in their career. And I say, you know, it's all in, in terms of what your internal compass says. And what you just described just sounds such like an internal compass of 
well, I felt this way and I've, and I've learned from past experiences that, you know, this, this is why I'm here. And a lot of times, you know, I think you just have reflected so well on what it means to be a natural born leader in, ter in terms of just kind of like putting yourself out there, right? We just, we, we talked earlier on this episode about vulnerability and you kind of like made yourself vulnerable, but made yourself vulnerable because you want to recess, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> made yourself vulnerable because you, you wanted these things to happen. And although some people can like, perhaps might call it bossy, but you know, it's kind of like, I'm going to lead us to help get us to this direction, to help get us recess at the end of the day right? The, the goal is recess. I'm going to get us there. That is, that is leadership 101. I that is I, book. really, yeah, I, I guess I never really reflected on it until you asked me this question, right? Yeah. So I think you're totally right. Um, I, you, you said a, a couple things in this podcast that are um, totally aligned with me. Vulnerability is one of them. Um, a lot of times you'll hear that as a piece of weakness. I don't know if you've done any Brene Brown reading. I was going to ask you oh. if you love Brene Brown. I love, I love her. Brene Brown, right? <laughs> like she is my, like my hero. I oh. want to, I want to have an afterlife as Brene Brown. <laughs> um, Shout out her, to Brene Brown. I don't know if she listens to this podcast, but you have trans transformed our lives. <laughs> she has been so influential. First, the gift of imperfection, right? So mm -hmm. let me just say, that I, I was a perfectionist, I suffer from OCD, and I am healed <laughs> um, from those things. And, you know, just being introduced to Brene about seven, eight years ago has been game-changing for me and, and life-changing on a yeah. personal and professional level. Uh, I feel like I know her. I I, I don't obviously. Right, I've right, never, right. you know, but I feel so intimate with her when I'm reading her books and doing her workbooks. I'm looking. I'm up in my office right now, and I'm looking over my bookshelf. Gifts of Imperfection, Daring Greatly, Braving the Wilderness, Rising Strong, Dare to Lead. I mean, that is my vocabulary. Yeah, that is you, actually. Like, like right. I, I've known you for, for quite some time, um, for, for the listeners, we have both served on boards and we've now are like kind of exist in some sort of a same paradigm of an organization, but knowing you for quite some time, like, like that is literally you, you know, you are these things that you're kind of like, yes, I need to do this. I need to, I need to dare greatly. You know, like when you talk, you're like, I'm going to do this. And I'm like, okay. Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I think you know, a lot of times people say to me, well, Susan, you're very direct or, um, you know, you don't mince your words. I, I, I truly don't only because I believe clear is kind. Mm -hmm. I believe being clear is very kind. And I also truly believe that other people give me the courage to dare greatly. Mm. You know, I watch... I, I watch um, other nurses take on these challenging patients. I'll, I look at COVID and I think to myself, you gave me courage. You gave me the hope that um, we can rise together. The nurses that I worked with, um, and I wasn't bedside during COVID, um, quite honestly, 
So I, I don't claim to be any one of those superheroes and magicians that pulled it off day in and day out. But they gave me the courage to do other things that I needed to do in my life. And, you know, like nursing for me isn't just um, a vocation, a profession, a, a career. It is truly one of the most meaningful life journeys I, I think I will ever experience. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to Brene Brown real quick. Oh, I'm not sure. sure. If you listen to other podcasts, you know, like if, like if that's what you do, or if you just read books, but two of my favorite podcasts of hers are Unlocking Us and Dare yes. to Leave. Unlocking oh, Us yeah. is just, you can listen to so many people who are, who have like, you know, quote unquote stature or celebrityism or influence greater than yourself right and you can still hear yourself in these conversations mm -hmm. and even with like the dare to lead podcast you know learning such valuable lessons on everything really it just helps you kind of like put things into perspective as you will I have not read her books and I have not done her her workbooks but now that you've mentioned this I'm going to have to <laughs> because, you are you <laughs> because are. once once I'm done my semester um, I, I will have more time to kind of dig into different things of that nature, but because I, I'm still stuck on Jim Collins's new book, um, Business 2.0, that I had gained from Brene's podcast. I was like, oh, well, I need to read this book, you know, and I'm only halfway done it because I had school start again. And I was like, well, I have to stop this book because I got to read another book, but I fully intend on, intend on, on, on getting back to it because most of the books that she has recommended, I'm kind of like, I need to save this for future use because this will probably have meaning in my life later on down the road. You yeah, know, I, I, I agree. Um, I'm not a big reader. I do a lot of audiobooks. Oh, okay. Um, I, I struggle to, with reading comprehension. Yeah. Um, it was, a, yeah, I had a learning disability. Well, I, I'm, clearly I still do. Um, I have a learning disability. I, I, I do not the intake doesn't happen for me, but the, the audio does. So okay. I'm a real auditory learner. Yeah. And so I do most audiobooks. That's and, great to hear um, as well. Because right. I love so, Go ahead. I'm so sorry. Uh, you know, the nursing school was really hard for me because I had to record all the lectures so that I could re-listen to them because I couldn't follow in, in the nursing books. Like I just couldn't get it. And I still don't. I'm not... Yeah. I don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> but I hear it and it, it makes sense to me. Yeah. That's awesome that, that you just shared that. And I, and thank you because there are students that listen to this podcast that have disabilities and they have, you know, learning comprehension stuff and perhaps like maybe it's just not clicking to them and, and maybe auditory learning is for them. And you just shared an invaluable tip of how to reimagine nursing school and kind of make it work for them. When you, I'm, I'm, I'm going to switch back now from Renee Brown. Okay, we, let's we might go. go back to that. See, it's a jungle gym. It's, it's a jungle, jungle gym. gym. And it's a jungle gym conversation. And I have ADHD, so it really is fine. Wow. Yeah, here we go. Right? There we go. So I'm really interested in your role as a trauma PI coordinator case manager, um, simply because I think this was around the time that I met you, you were, you were doing this role. And I want to know, you know, because we just talked about vulnerability and all this stuff. If that, if that role really, you know, hit that spot of vulnerability and, and what that role was like. Oh my gosh. That's funny because I went into that role. 
um, I was at a crossroads. I was in a leadership role and I wanted out. I needed a break. Um, I needed a job. I didn't need that job. And I always feel that that's how life should be for me. I need a job. I don't need this job. And it, it helps me um, not have anxiety every day knowing mm. that, right? Yeah. So I went into the PI coordinator role. Um, I had never done trauma. And it was a brand new um, facility trying to be accredited. So I had to develop the trauma PI program. Wow. So that meant, I know, right? That's what was a, I thinking? a huge undertaking. Right. And I was going to work for one of my best friends, which often is a no-no. <laughs> I don't highly recommend it. It was a real strain on all of us, including myself. Yeah. <clears throat> um, the beauty is I'm pretty strategic, right? Like I know I need to look at policy. I need to look at accrediting standards. I need to figure out where our gaps are and then I need to build it. And that's really how I approach everything in life. It's like, that is just how I'm wired. And I'm so grateful for that. <clears throat> so going into this uh, PI trauma um, program was definitely one of the most challenging jobs I, I had ever taken on. And most times when a trauma program is being accredited for the first time, the reason it is not successful is because their PI program is immature. And what I mean by that is they don't always have all the processes in place correct the first time around, or they're just not robust enough, right? And that is what happened. We did not get accredited on the first go round. And what a huge feeling of failure. Yeah. Because I, I was the developer. Yeah. Um, and that wasn't like a fault, right? It took a long time for me to understand that, but it wasn't my fault. It was that we really lacked resource and the support to build the program. So one of the things I, one of the biggest takeaways was I knew what to do. I knew how to do it. What we didn't have is enough resource to execute it well. I'm writing that down. Sorry for the for, for the lag and silence there because no. in in reflection, you know, it's it's also really nice to hear about failures in a way because I feel like when people talk about leadership, you know, it's kind of like we did this thing, but I was still successful at it, right? And oftentimes people don't talk about failures as a way of moving forward and as a way of of kind of allowing oneself to feel failure and to allow yourself to grieve in some, in some aspects of it as well. Like mm -hmm. it's not, it, it perhaps is not crying, right? Gr grieving is different for everybody, looks different for everybody. But I think that, you know, as a leader stepping into this new role of developing this trauma program, which sounds really daunting and just, you know, crazy. And I'm sure there's a lot of politics involved. I, I could just imagine that, you know, people clash a lot, you know, in, in, in many different right. ways about who, who, who wants what, who gets what, and how does this work out that sometimes failure happens and sometimes failure happens for a good reason. I think it all happens for a good reason. Sometimes, you know, you, you have, it kind of forces yourself into 
driving a different direction or into renegotiating some things. But I think that that is a really good lesson for people to hear in that not every leadership position is going to be successful and it's not going to lead to success. It might lead to failure, but you might learn about things and you might, you know, take another role some, somewhere and discover that that failure that you had before drove yourself to success in this new position. Yeah. You know, one of the, the key things that I identified during that whole process is we didn't have the right stakeholders at the table, right? Okay. You think, you think you do, yeah. you think you do. And then in the end, you're like, oh, what about them? That's why we couldn't get that off the ground. We didn't, we just didn't have all the right people at the table. Yeah. And, you know, when you are, you know, trying to build a program such as a trauma and the PI pieces, you know, the performance improvement and the safety plan. And, you know, it's, it's the, it's the foundation of ensuring that you have all the standards in place to meet the accrediting body. Um, there's so many tasks at hand that you just, you, you want to be able to get it done and be able to present it that you lose sight of some of the very important pieces and you, in retrospect, you're like, aha, that's it, that's why. And <clears throat> it wasn't my timeline, it was the timeline I was given. Okay. <clears throat> so I think I probably did the best I could in that timeline, but I also didn't realize where all the buy-in needed to come from, you know, yeah. Hey, we're going to have a trauma program. Well, there were people who didn't want a trauma program, right? Really? Yeah. We're, we're good right where we are. We're, we, why do we need this? And <clears throat> I wasn't the marketer or the seller of the product, but I had to get the engagement. And, you know, looking back, it was truly about relationships and stakeholders. Mm. Yeah, I, I was about to ask if there was a timeline because oftentimes when you if you're given a, a program a project to build, you have you have a specific timeline, and even even for students you have timelines on QI projects or right. EBP projects, and this is helpful to them because stakeholders you know if you have a very complex project you're trying to figure out, and even if it's just a lit review you know having stakeholders to buy into that process of this lit review is just as important as, as, you know, finding stakeholders for building a trauma program, you know, and even learning specific leadership skills of engaging stakeholders for our master's students and even doctoral students is such important lessons learned that you read about it, right? When you're, when you're learning about this stuff and you're like, oh, I, I got this. But then when you're like in the moment of <laughs> Until you something, it's like, it's like, well, who, who are the stakeholders? Cause no one tells you like in your job, right. <laughs> there's no, like, I, I wish there was like this, like resource of the names and the people of who these stakeholders are. Because when I was chair of a council several years ago, they like the, the leaders of these, like the administrators, I should say of the councils that oversee things, they, they, they kind of are just like, oh yeah, just reach out to this person and this person. I'm like, I don't know these people. Like, can there be like a right. book? Right, right, like, exactly. Like how this works, because I don't know how this works. 
And if I don't get how this works, no one else does except for y'all. So yeah, it's, it's really, it's really daunting to, to try to figure out like who these stakeholders are and who to bring to the table at the right time. Oh goodness. (laughs) Timing. Oh, timing is everything. Timing is everything. Lessons learned is everything. Like, you know, getting out there and just talking to people is everything too. That's a lesson I've learned from being on on many councils and just, you know, seeing, asking people what they do is really, really important. What do you do? What are your greatest tips? What do you see in your role that I don't see in, in, in my own life? You know, like these things really are invaluable because you never know when you're going to need someone, you know, Mm -hmm. to help solve a problem with you. So, yeah. Yeah. And I'm a big believer in, um, being eloquent and never burning your bridge right Mm. because you never know where you're gonna end up again you never know i've been back i've been back at the same hospital three different times in three different roles (laughs) right you're always welcome back you know that's right and i want to keep it that way yeah i want to keep it that way absolutely oh that's so good i have probably a huge i don't know if it's a huge question we'll just go with it what is being a chief nursing officer like like, what is the role of chief, a chief nursing officer? I mean, I know it's different for every or, type of organization, but sure. what is that role like to give insight to students who may want to pursue that role in the future? Whoa, that's a little bit loaded there, Nicole. Um, <laughs> no, sorry. So, no, no, no. Um, being a chief nursing officer was probably one of the greatest honors when someone gives you that ultimate responsibility and um, putting all those people in your care, right? Not just the patients, but the staff. And knowing that 24-7, you're ultimately responsible for all of it. You really want to be prepared for that. I'm not a title person. I never was. I really like to do the work. I, the work needs to be meaningful to me. But there's something about that title that just can make your skin crawl a little bit. Mm. And I don't mean in a bad way or a good yeah. way. I just, it, it's, it's, it's a really, it, it's like that ultimate role where it can go great or it could spiral very quickly for you. I knew once I was in the role that it was way more than I could commit. And although I think that I probably was uh, very effective, I was not prepared for it. I was not prepared for it. Um, It took a lot of time and energy, you know, because you learn the financial side of it, you learn the reimbursement side, the regulatory side, the quality side, the people side, the patient side. It's all of it coming into your office and figuring out mission critical and how do we sustain a hospital in a healthcare climate that is really um, I don't even know what the word I want to say 
when I did it, the, the healthcare climate was really uncertain of where yeah. we were headed. Yeah. Really uncertain. I would, I would absolutely yeah. say the same thing during, during those years that I'm looking at. And that was around the time just after, I think a lot of reimbursement changes happened. Correct. And if we didn't change ways, it was a loss of like millions of dollars. And that was, that was also the time when we were just shifting from, or just shifting towards value-based care. And that meant a lot of things for health systems very rapidly. Rapidly, rapidly. So, so rapidly um, for, for many different reasons. I, I remember being, being in this health systems leadership fellowship thing and that's all we talked about was was value-based care and and that was just kind of it, it it makes a lot of sense but what that means for leadership and changing hospital organizations it was a lot i i remember just just hearing from different administrators and other people in leadership roles about how it really affects so much and yeah i mean i i, I couldn't imagine that role at that time being anything less than just like chaos in a way. Yeah, yeah, complete chaos. Yeah. Um, and having to navigate that with um, all of those changes and trying to find the right staff, you know, anytime there's a senior level change, there is departure, right? Yep. It's, it's just nature. It's, just it's how happen. it happens. Yep. It's how it happens, right? Um, trying to build your own internal leadership structure, you know, with your managers, your charge nurses, your strong nurse leaders, the informal leaders, um, and then figuring out that even though people want to follow you, and that's what happens when you change jobs or you go to a different organization or whatever, there are a lot of people who really are your, you know, your gang, you know, they come with you. Yeah. yeah. And trying to help them understand that it really wasn't a good time to come. I needed them, but it wasn't the right timing. Right. 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 Because I didn't know if I was going to sustain the role. Yeah. Because a, a few months into it, I'm like, wow, this is more than I ever bargained for. And I'm not sure I bit off more than I could chew. Not that I couldn't do it. I'm just at a point in my life where I don't know if I want to do it, right? Yeah, correct. I need a job. I don't need this job. Um, and you think you 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 think you're prepared to drive all the change and and be ready for the consequences that come with that until you're in the thick of it mm -hmm. and you're like, okay, well, my 90 hours this week, I can't sustain this. Oof, no. You know, and, and I no can't sustain this. You know, right. It is not a badge of honor to work that not. hard that long. It is not a badge of honor. No, because it doesn't, it doesn't go anywhere. Like I, I, I don't ever want, you know, colleagues, my friends to step into something where they feel like this is the ultimate thing working 80, 90 hour a week. Work right. week. Like that's just, that's just insane to me, you know, because at the end of the day, no one else cares that you've done this. You know what I mean? Nope. It's just, that's, that, that's well, the role, you, and, you know? Right. You start to develop a martyr syndrome too, mm. 
right? And yeah. it's unhealthy. It's it's just unhealthy. And that was really a big turning point for me too, where I I was really able to identify that my health was at risk. Um, and that I needed to take better care of myself and that it didn't, I always said I didn't care about titles. I don't know why I cared about that one so much. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to be successful and and I knew I could be, but at what, what cost, at yeah. what risk? Yeah. <clears throat> Did you ever experience imposter syndrome in any of your roles? Um, maybe. I never really thought about it like that, but yeah, I think probably. Just curious. Cause like, I, you know, I, I meet a lot of people and, and like they're in these roles, but they, they also like, don't feel like they should be in these roles, you know? And I'm like, but, yeah. but, you're, but you're perfect for this role. Like you are not, not that you are the role, right? Let's separate the, the, the whole concept of people, people are their roles. Cause I think that a lot of times that comes with false narratives and false things. And, but I do believe that sometimes people don't believe that they are as strong as they are, or they're as capable as they are and things like that. So yeah, I, I just didn't know if that was a concept that ever occurred, like happened to like within your career. Yeah. I think, I think I'm there right now, quite honestly. Okay. Um, yeah, I do. Uh, I, I didn't really align that until you said it. And I think maybe that's, that's part of my, um, struggle right now. <clears throat> Renee Brown coming back to us, self-discovery. Jeez, that's right. That's right. Thanks, Nicole. Now I have to go journal after this. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Happy that right. we have discovered new things together about like Correct. different Correct. different techniques and stuff though. Um, I, I, I'm going to certainly tag Brene in this post. I <laughs> right. Because maybe, I don't know, maybe she'll do it. Who knows? But I think, I think these themes though are just, are just really good at helping helping people navigate their own careers because there's gonna be so many times when you walk into a place and you just can't fathom how you got there I've had that happen so many times like so mm -hmm. many times like I can't I can't believe that I am in an Ivy League school getting my doctorate degree right after after a teacher so many years ago told me I'm not gonna make it anywhere in the healthcare field right you know? Yeah. Who thought I'd have a master's? Who thought, you know, we'd be who certified? Thought? Who thought that that was like a thing? Because even then, even my stroke certification, I was told, well, you're not smart enough to get the stroke certification. Right. Okay. Well, I'm going to go get it. I'm going to show you, <laughs> you know? So, and then, and, and then I have it. And then, you know, you work so hard, so fast that you kind of, I guess you kind of forget to reflect on things. I don't know where this, the, the syndrome comes from. But I, but I do think that it happens and I, and I think it's important to navigate it. And I'm not an expert at it, but I do oftentimes feel the need of asking people if they have the same things because it, it kind of helps me in a way. And I know if it helps me, it's going to help a lot of other people hear this. Right. Through the podcast, mm -hmm. so. I tend to shrink down mm. at times. That's right? a really good concept too. Yeah. Um, even though I know, and I know I know, I'm confident in what I know. Yeah. I I get shushed because I'm not a legacy employee or I've worked too long at a small community hospital. How could I possibly know in the big academic world? Um, so I, I tend to shrink, which is totally not what I would consider myself ever doing before. But I've seen it recently where I, I shrink. Yeah. 
I, I have thought about that in my own role because I've been, I've literally been in like the same primary role for a good number of years. And I thought, well, am I shrinking myself to fit into this, mm-hmm. model, this, this role? Right. And that's a concept that has, that has come over my mind many times. And I don't know the answer to it. I don't think so, but I, but I also don't know. Did, did I miss out on, on different things? I don't know because I often reflect back and, and read my own resume and just kind of reflect at times. And I'm like, well, I don't think I did, right? Because I, I wouldn't be where I am now if I had shrunk myself or something else occurred. So who knows? But I do want to know, so there's a lot of professional affiliations and I want to know the value of that for you in terms of being affiliated with, with, with so much. Oh, well, I, you know, I don't think I would be the nurse I am today if I hadn't joined professional organizations and done the networking and just learned so much about um, the value of nursing that's out there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't want to be a salesman for it, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't say to anyone listening to this podcast or the students, you have got to get involved. You've got to. I mean, it's, it should be mandatory, it in my be. opinion. It should be mandatory. Um, I have met some of the most amazing people, and I have learned so much from being part of these organizations. Yeah. Um, you take back clinical issues to your units. You learn better practices. You become much more a visionary by listening to what's going on out there in these organizations. Just simple listening helps you put things in perspective and say, you know what? I know we do good, but I want to do great. Mm. And they're doing great. And I want to know how they're doing it. Yeah. Because for me, good is never enough. Right. There's I always want to do the great. There's always, there's always and, yeah. and there's always that next step. I think that was a really key thing when I joined the SVACN and the AACN was just meeting people that had the same issues as my organization. And I was like, oh, well, we're all in the same boat together, you know, and, and it kind of was mind boggling that how interconnected things really are in the world of nursing and how, how many people actually know each other is, is just like, is mind blowing to me because you just don't realize it until you volunteer yourself, until you get out there and experience other things and meet new people and, and talk to people, relationships, key themes of, of this talk, right? Relationships. Right. Relationships, vulnerability, um, jungle gyms. Jungle, I love jungle gyms. That's, well, that's Sheryl Sandberg. I can't take credit for that. You oh, have is to it? read her. Yeah. Yeah. Read some of her books. And you may or may not like um, background stories, but she has some really good, interesting themes on what life throws at you and how you navigate it. I love, I love background stories. I, I don't know if, if you've ever listened to any of, of the other podcast episodes here, but I always love when people talk about their background stories about why they became a nurse and the background stories of certain roles or of certain thoughts that had, had happened or certain success, things like that. Because I think that background stories just paint that picture for someone 
and help them navigate in a different way that they didn't think of before right Right. and it might not be the same same thing like we're not Cheryl Sandberg making you know oodles of money per year but she's had some pretty intense things happen to her life that I couldn't fathom right and it would never want happen to, to me and, sh- and for her to share things like that is is really a really remarkable thing to, to learn from and to move forward with. Yeah, so I'm going to write that down. Probably, I'll, I'll put, I'm going to put both Cheryl Sandberg mm-hmm. and obviously Renee Brown in our notes for the podcast episode detailed I think, description. I think that might have been option B. I think option that was her B. book. Yeah. Then are you a fan of, um, oh goodness, Oh goodness, his name's gonna escape me until I find it. He's a professor at UPenn. And he was within Cheryl Sandberg. Um it's gonna bother me until I find it. Will you find it? I'm gonna I'm gonna find I'm also it. a big fan of Simon Sennick. I've I have oh I have infinite infinite game um, yeah. of, of his. I haven't I haven't done it yet, but yeah. I have listened to his podcast with Brene Brown and I was like, I need this book. <laughs> right. I blame right. all of, all of, all of the things. Um, you know, and people will say, well, you know, this is really feely, fluffy stuff you guys are talking about, but the truth is it's evidence-based, right? That, and it matters. It, it's, it ma- and it matters. It really, really matters. Because everyone goes through the fluffy stuff. The, the fluffy, we have focused so long on such hard things. And honestly, at the end of the day, everyone still goes home frustrated. Everyone still goes home feeling shame. Everyone still goes home feeling different things. And oh, it, it might seem fluffy to people that have described it as such, but it matters. It matters so much for success of companies, for things like that. Like I, I really quick story. I remember being on my unit and these people came by and they're like, well, how can we fix how can we fix C. diff and Caudi? They asked me this question. And I said, well, you need to start taking care of the emotional health of your employees. And then you'll fix Caudi and C. diff. That is correct. Because if you don't, we're going to still have the same problems because emotional health and emotional intelligence and the soft side of things are way more important than forcing someone to co-sign something, are way more important than someone you know, reviewing hard metrics every month, which gets really boring. It's, it's way more important to realize that mistakes happen because we're all vulnerable and mistakes happen because we've, we have probably gone through something in our personal lives that, that we don't, we don't really, you know, connect the dots at the time, but because I'm stressed, I forgot to do this lab. And because I forgot to do this lab, now the patient's at risk for a heparin overdose. And because of this, this happens, you know, the author's name is Adam Grant, by the way. Adam Grant, I'm going to write that down. Yeah, write that down. He, he was actually the co-author of, of, op, of Option B, Facing Adversity, Building Resilience, and Finding Joy. So he, he was that co-author on that book, which is why that's sparked okay. that interest. But he's, he is a, he's within Wharton at Penn, and he has many books. He has, he's kind of like the, um, oh, hold on. Freakonomics. Have you ever heard of, of, of the book or the concept no. of Freakonomics? So things that happen and we want to we want to say they happen because of this reason, but actually the hidden reason is because they happen this way. And it's just really 
crazy concepts. So he's he's kind of like he kind of does the like that sort of thing where he reframes stuff and does a lot of organizational psychology and is a really really great author um and great speaker and just he's just amazing but highly recommend to read those resources will do written down word so noted (laughs) noted sue is there anything else that you want to mention to this podcast um so i i just really think it's important to um be good to yourself be kind to yourself Um, If we're not kind to ourselves, we can't be kind to others, right? You can be the best clinician, but if you are not kind, if you are not sincere in your word, if you're not aligned with yourself, um, you will not take good care of your patients, right? Take care of people, take care of your colleagues. If you're a leader, take care of the people that you have been chosen to lead. That will then in turn take care of those patients it's simple and we try we do so much to make it difficult but it really is simple Mm. and the the soft stuff really matters I think Mm. I I had done a presentation soft skills are hardcore requirement at one time Mm -hmm. I don't think they're soft skills anymore I just think they're required yeah they should be that they're mandatory competencies um just like putting an IV in yeah Um, we we have to work on it it matters. It matters to our people. It matters to our patients. It matters to me. And I'm really grateful to be part of this podcast today. I've learned a lot. And I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> I have. I have lots of things here that I want to go back and look at. And um, I have some more listening to do. And I think your journey is awesome. Be a creative. In, in my own jungle gym, you know in that's right creating I'm, I'm actually gym. creating my own jungle gym instead of going through different roles of jungle gyms I'm like well I'll just try this you know and see if it works and if it doesn't hey whatever you know right, that's right. but you can never look back and go well I, I I wish I would have tried that right exactly you don't you don't want to do that you don't want to do that absolutely not nope well Sue thank you so much I hope you join us again on this podcast again in the future and I look forward to speaking to you again You bet. You have a great day. You too.